It's always interesting to me when events of our world mimic events in our theological world or our ecclesiastical world, ecclesiastical being a really fancy name for church. So it's interesting to me when things in my life are mimicking things in the church. And there are plenty of examples of this in my life. I'm only going to give you a few. (laughs) But both times I was pregnant, I was pregnant during Advent. And it was the second Advent where I was the most pregnant. My second pregnancy, I was huge. I was literally counting down the days. And I felt like it would be a lot easier if someone just kind of rolled me, just pushed me into church those days. Now, I vividly remember reading, feeling so big, reading the story of Mary, riding on a donkey and counting down the days, just looking for a place to be. And I remember the death of a family member toward the end of Holy Week one year. In church, as I literally was reading the last days of the life of Jesus, I was also watching the last days of life of a family member. When you see the similarities, it changes the focus. Last year, the very first day of Epiphany is the day that everyone stormed the Capitol. A day that we as a church were saying, it is time to run out into the world, find the Christ child, and offer all the gifts you have to the world. That is the exact day that everyone ran into the Capitol. And that day, a different part of the scriptural story was being unfolded. The one of fear and violence and hatred of a King Herod. When you see the similarities, it changes the focus. This past week for me, I've spent a lot more time in my car. And I've been following the stories after stories that are coming out of Ukraine. And all the while I'm hearing these stories, I know in my mind that I am preparing for this moment right here, the fourth Sunday of Advent. And every time there's a story of Ukraine, it leads with this fourth week of war. There's a connection there. Here we are in a time of Lent. Here we are as people of the church who are remembering ashes to ashes and dust to dust while there is a nation, a country, that is putting another country to dust. And as I heard these stories, I hear stories of hunger and of thirst. And just right here last week, we celebrated packaging 15,000 meals. And we celebrated the work of Elizabeth in Africa through Waterfor, who's literally digging water wells and repairing broken water wells in Africa. There's a connection there. And here we have this leader, somewhat unexperienced, somewhat new, who is so loyal and so dedicated that he won't flee because he believes in the power of freedom. And now we have an entire country on the edge of a cliff being tempted with water, with bread, and with power. It's a whole different type of 40 days. And when you see the similarities, 
it changes the focus. And the question that kept coming to me all week, when is the resurrection? When is the resurrection? And so I did what I always do. I looked at scripture. And of course, with all of this stuff circling around me, have all these stories circling around me, all these events of the world, of the church. And I went to scripture and our lectionary reading for the day, meaning years and years and years ago, when people decided the different texts we would read every day, the scripture was selected for today without ever knowing what event would be unfolding. We have Luke 15 designated for today. And I am going to read it unapologetically of its length. Because <laughs> it's long. It's a lot longer than we're used to. But again, we're going to read it. And if you've read this story a thousand times, that is fantastic. And if you've never read it before, we're about to do it now. Here we go. Luke 15 says this. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The story of the prodigal son. The younger of them said to his father, give me the share of my property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He traveled to a distant country and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to the one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. And he would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And so he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and the father was filled with compassion and he ran and he put his arms around him. And then the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine that was dead is alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was still in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one and asked, what is going on? And he replied, oh, your brother has come home. And your father's killed the fatted calf because he has gotten back home safe and sound. And then the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. And so the father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, 
For all these years, I have been working for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never given even a young goat that I can celebrate with my friends. And but when the son of yours came back, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him? And then the father said to him, son, you were always with me. And all that is mine has always been yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he's been found. Oh, sibling rivalry. Oh, don't you love it? It feels so good, doesn't it? It makes things feel a little normal. Because if you have a brother, like I do, or a sister, you know that sibling rivalry is around. And it makes you feel good to know that it's normal. I wish that I could tell you that as you get older, you won't fight anymore with your sibling. <laughs> I can't say that though. Because I learned this week the exact opposite. I can't tell you how I know, just I'll get in a lot of trouble if I tell you who, but just know. I will tell you this. I learned this week that there are two sisters. They're in their 90s. Again, I can't tell you who they are. I get in a lot of trouble. But they're two sisters in their 90s. And right now they're in a standoff. They're not speaking to one another. And you know what the fight's over? Inheritance and land. Siblings have been fighting since the beginning. In scripture, we have Cain and Abel. We have Isaac and Jacob. We have the older, we have the younger. In the Methodist church, we have siblings. John Wesley, our founder, had a brother named Charles. John, of course, in addition to founding a church, is also known for writing sermons. Charles, the brother, is known for writing hymns. And guess what? We have documented proof that they fought and argued. Sibling rivalry is always going to be around. And this story sure is about sibling rivalry. But you know what? It's about a lot more than that, too. And a man named Henry Nowen reminds us of that. If you don't know the name Henry Nowen, I want you to look it up and I want you to read whatever you can because he was an incredible spiritual pastor and an accomplished theologian and writer. He has written incredibly powerful things. And there's a story about Henry Nowen. And it says in 1986, Henry Nowen went and took a tour of St. Petersburg, Russia. And while he was there, he went into the Heritage Museum and he found a painting by Rembrandt. And the painting is called The Prodigal Son, right there in Russia. And the story goes that Henry Nouwen found this painting in a hallway. And in the hallway where the painting is, there are all of these windows of natural light. And Henry Nowen stood in front of this painting for two hours. And the spiritual transformation that came over him during those two hours 
actually inspired him to write a book called The Prodigal Son. Because Henry Nouwen said that with every change of angle of the light, a new part of the painting was revealed. And his exact quote is this. There were as many paintings in the prodigal son as there were changes in the day. Meaning, with every different light, with every different change, it changed the focus. And so wherever you are in your life, whatever experience you're having, whatever power struggle you're having, whatever fear you're having, whatever might be happening in your particular life will change the way you hear and read or listen to this story. And it's very interesting because theologians have talked a lot about this text. And for a really long time, theologians said that the story of the prodigal son was never meant to be together. It was actually meant to be two different stories. The story of a younger guy that went away and a story of an older guy that stayed. And it's real easy to look at them in parts like that. It's very easy, a lot more palatable. But when you put them together and make them brothers, the story of the inheritance becomes complicated and offensive. And so there are different angles to it now. And of course, one of the angles is the father. We have this father who sees the younger son and the father starts to run after him. And I'm going to tell you right now, men at this time, they didn't run. It was scandalous to think of a man running and especially running to a son that's already humiliated him, a son that asked for his property, asked for his inheritance way too early, almost saying, you were dead to me, father, I'm better on my own. And now we have this younger son coming back and the cultural law said, bring the son back. That's okay. The law allowed for the younger son to return home, but the law allowed for him to be given bread and water and put aside. What would have been scandalous is the reception he received. The father ran and said, no, no, give him a ring, a robe, and a fatted calf. And so the one that has squandered everything received the most extravagant. Another angle, of course, is the other son. The other son who was stable and steady and true to the family, that's the one that helped build up the resources of the inheritance. That's the one that did all the work and stayed behind. And now we have him who was angry and jealous. You've never even let me through a party and now you're going to give him everything? And the father says, don't you know, everything I've had has been yours the entire time. You just had to ask. And then we have another angle, the angle of being lost, which I think probably would be the horrible, it's just so horrible to feel lost. And there are men and there are women right now in our world, across the world, that are feeling lost for all sorts of reasons. 
lost because they don't have a home, lost because of some type of violence in their home or outside of it, lost because of the color of their skin, the people that they love, or some diagnosis of mental health. There are people who feel lost, and there are people who don't feel worthy that they deserve better, and they do. There's an angle of not feeling sure where to go. And then this is going to really offend us. There's another angle, and this one's trickier. This is the angle that some theologians say, this is a commentary on church people. I know, I'm one of them. I love church people. I am a church person. Some people say this story condemns church people because guess what? It's the church people who have been staying the whole time, stable and steady, never leaving the fold. We're the ones that are building up everything, and yet we are so afraid to share the inheritance with the other, the stranger, or the most vulnerable. That belief says that we in church will close the door before we break it wide open and say, it's for you too. There are lots of different angles of this story. And so I wonder... If you're standing in Russia, in front of the painting, what would you see? What picture, what part would stand out to you the most? I've seen pictures of the prodigal son just these last weeks. I'm going to show you one. You've known, you've seen this one before. That is a picture of the prodigal son. This went viral several weeks ago. This is a picture at one of the train stations in Poland where all the moms left all of their strollers. And these aren't just cheap strollers. These are nice strollers. They left all their strollers so that the parents who are coming off the trains can give their hands and arms rest by putting a child down that they've been carrying. It's a powerful picture. What's even more powerful is what's behind it that's not on the camera. What wasn't captured are the many lines of people who are waiting outside the train station should one refugee ask for anything. There are provisions in the wings of clothes and jewelry and fatted calves. I'll show you another picture. This picture is from the World Central Kitchen. If you've ever heard of it, it's a wonderful nonprofit. It was founded by a very famous chef. And this World Central Kitchen, they go all over the world where there is need. They've been in Haiti, now they've moved to the borders of Ukraine. And what they do is they don't just bring ingredients of food. They actually go with their ingredients and they train people who live there and they cook the meals together and then eat them. And so instead of just giving everyone bread and water and putting them aside to safety, which would be okay, this central kitchen, you know what they do? They made chicken noodle soup and apple pie. Look at the next slide. That's apple pie with the little man who grabbed his little kitten on the way out. These are pictures of the prodigal son. And so I wonder, you have a Polaroid picture at your pew. Take a minute, I want you to find it. There are little pictures. And let's pretend for a moment that you could paint 
anything. What's the picture that you've been seeing? I know that when you heard this story, a face appeared to you, or an issue appeared to you, or a person appeared to you. It could have been your brother, but don't tell mine. Could have been a sibling, it could have been a parent, it could be a friend. Who are you supposed to run to? Who are you supposed to be steady and true for? There are all sorts of questions and angles, and the picture is yours to make, and it's holding in your hand now. Take a minute. What would you draw on that picture? Think about it mentally. Because here's the truth. No matter what you see or what you hear, the inheritance is the same. God's forgiveness, reconciliation, affirmation, and homecoming. And if we take every picture by itself, that is very, very palatable. But when we take all of our pictures and we decide that we are siblings in Christ, that's when God's love becomes incredibly extravagant and offensive, complicated and wonderful. When we ask ourselves the question, when is the resurrection? Do you know the answer is in our text? And you know what the answer is? When is the resurrection? The resurrection is today. It's now. Because as people of Lent, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, so repent and believe in the gospel, every single Sunday of Lent is known as a little Easter. And so yes, while we are remembering ashes, we are also remembering a resurrection every time we gather on a Sunday of worship. And so when's the resurrection? It's today. And how's the resurrection? It's through the people of Christ, which is you and me. It's the people of Christ sharing strollers and apple pies when bread and water would have been fine. We are called to be the people of God so that people can experience a resurrection right now. And when you see the similarity in that, it changes the focus of everything. And so now it's really your turn. I want you to think about a word. I want you to think about a phrase. And I want you to take that in a minute, take that picture, that Polaroid in a minute, and I'm gonna have you write it down. You can find a pen in the pews. There are Sharpies in the pews. And I'm gonna have you write down a word or a phrase of your thought so that that will be your new focus these next weeks and days of Lent. And then we're really going to be chaotic because when we're finished writing on our Polaroids, we're going to walk right outside of this door. Everybody on all sides. We're going to walk outside of that door and we're going to hang a left and there's a beautiful breezeway that overlooks our columbarium. And we're going to hang all of our pictures. And then we're going to file right back See, I'm telling you, file right back between these two back doors, right into your seats. And so if you're in our playgrounds, before we move, I want to make sure you are clean and clear. 
So if you're in our playgrounds, I want you to go find the people that brought you just so that you are clean and clear with a parent. But you know why we're going to hang our pictures of the prodigal son and of our focus right there in the breezeway? Because we are going to look at death and we are going to be the people that bring life. If something is lost, it will now be found. The people who have died will now find in us an Easter people. So take your moment, find your focus, and write it on your piece of paper now.